a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Welcome back, Rebels and Imperials, to Force Ghost Coast to Coast. I am Brian, and with me, as always, are my friends Matt and Liz. Hello, friends. Hey. Hello. So we decided a few months ago that we were going to spend part of the summer watching the prequel trilogy because all of us, I think, have complicated relationships with the prequel trilogy, (laughs) Uh, maybe bordering on hostile at times. Um, But one of the things that my Star Wars fandom has done over the past five years is to gain a greater appreciation for the prequel trilogy. Part of that is through my watching of the Clone Wars and Rebels. Part of that is, I think, just the um, the sort of knee-jerk reaction against them going away a little bit as I've learned to care less about, you know, hating George Lucas or whatever, you know, just like <laughs> uh, being able to take them more sort of at what they are versus what maybe I wanted them to be and then i think it's also just um seeing the the mistakes of the sequel trilogy and seeing how the prequel trilogy made a an entirely different series of mistakes so let's start with our first time seeing this movie uh liz what what was your first experience of the phantom menace like uh, well, first time I saw this movie, I was in college. I remember I got to see it for $3 since I was a student. And I remember I couldn't believe there was another Star Wars movie coming out. And um, I went with my friend Kelly and her group of friends. I couldn't believe I was going to see a Star Wars movie with a group of friends. Um, and uh, honestly, I think that was my biggest takeaway from it. It wasn't necessarily the movie itself. Um, <laughs> I don't remember too much about the plot, the characters. I just remember mainly the thrill of generally going to see another Star Wars movie. Maybe I remember seeing the scroll, the music, everyone cheering at the beginning. I think that's what I remember the most from going to see The Phantom Menace. Matt, how did you first see The Phantom Menace? I I saw The Phantom Menace after I had seen... Attack of the Clones. I'd been a big Star Wars fan. I watched all the special edition releases when they came back into theaters, but I just, for whatever reason, didn't have interest in the prequels. Um, I think there's a lot of like negativity surrounding them, so I just never jumped on the opportunity. And the only reason I saw Attack of the Clones is because it was raining down at the shore at Wildwood. So we saw it, and I was like, okay, I saw the second one. I may as well see the first one. Um not sure why I made that choice, but I think it was just like a blockbuster rental on a Friday. Um, so nothing really groundbreaking in my <laughs> real kind of first watch through. Uh, I have told this story on the show before. Listeners are probably sick of me saying it, but I had a couple of friends who worked at a local movie theater. And I knew from them that if you worked in the movie theater, you could see movies a day before they came out sometimes. And so that is the entire reason I got a job in a movie theater was to see The Phantom Menace a day before anyone else could. Because apparently I've always been an elitist asshole. Um, (laughs) I wanted to lord it over people. I remember leaving the theater and there being people lined up for the midnight screening. Uh, So that was was definitely a a formative moment. But yeah, um, so that's sort of where we saw it. What was... I, I know it's hard to think back to a, a now um, uh, 
21-year-old movie, I guess, uh, to remember yeah. how, how you felt about it initially. But what was what was your guys' initial thought on the movie when you saw it 28 years ago? I, I, I can start with this one because I remember the, after I saw it the first time, I had convinced myself it was great and really wanted to like it. And then I saw it a second time a few days later and the the sheen started to come off of it. And then I believe I saw it a third time, maybe with my brother. That that I feel like that's true, but we were not friendly in 1999. Uh, he was my annoying little brother, and I wanted very little to do with him. So maybe my mom made me take him to the movies. I, I don't remember the circumstances, but I remember seeing I, I saw the Phantom Menace at least three times in the movies. Now, you got to realize this time I was seeing the movies for free because I was working there, and so each time I saw it, I liked it less and less. To the point that by the time it was out of the theater, I was already saying how terrible it was. So I, I did a real big 180 on it um, when I started thinking about it as a movie and not about like what I wanted it to be. Um, Matt, what did you think of it the first time you saw it? I was underwhelmed by it because seeing Attack of the Clones, my friends were like, Okay, the first one was definitely better than this. I was like, oh, okay, because this is not a great movie. Um, and then seeing it and being just just confused, like, because I guess being somebody who had shied away from the prequels, I still had all the EU stuff in my head and trying to negotiate how cool the story should have been and what I was actually seeing just left me underwhelmed to the point that this is only the third time that I had seen the film. Um, it just really left me disappointed and that disappointment, I guess still, still stings. Liz, what did you think of it the first time you saw it? Honestly, I don't even remember. I'm going to say in general, I'm a person that leans towards liking movies. The first time I see them, I generally need to see them a second time to think them through. I I, I don't even remember. I, I'm going to say I probably liked it, but it's not a movie that stuck with me. I don't think I went to go see it again. I, there are other movies that came out at the same time, like The Matrix, which I definitely saw more than once. I distinctly remember seeing the movies. I distinctly remember buying on VHS watching in my dorm room in my on-campus apartment whatever it may be and i can't say the same thing about the phantom menace yeah what i think is one of the more interesting parts of the phantom menace story is that at the time star wars was it was star wars was always big business right it wasn't like it was ever this like indie underground thing that the cool kids were into but it, it didn't have the same sort of um there wasn't the ubiquity of Star Wars the way that there is now. And I feel like the people who wound up liking The Phantom Menace the most were people like my aforementioned brother who were younger when it came out and maybe saw it as like their generation Star Wars versus a continuation of the thing that was already popular with older people. And so mm -hmm. it, it's crazy. To, it's crazy to me when I think about it. But I think this is actually true, that I think that the people who disliked Star Wars, disliked the Phantom Menace the most, were the biggest Star Wars fans. And I, 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 I sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Brian. 
I was going to say, I feel like that's the exact opposite model that we see with the way sequels are made today, which is that they are they are interested in getting a new audience, but it's it seems like the primary importance is satisfying the old audience. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. My younger brother, his friends, they really liked the prequels and they were much younger. Um, and they had some background of the original trilogy, but for them, this was a big deal. They loved Darth Maul. Um, he was a great villain for them. And for me, it was it just wasn't the same. Yeah. Yeah, I think that rewatching, just seeing how different this film was than the other Star Wars films, it just didn't feel, and again, I, as an older fan now, hate when people say this, it just didn't feel like Star Wars. But back then, Star Wars is such a kind of small, enclosed picture. And, like, I don't think I was ready to broaden that picture at that point. That's a really good way to put it. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so let's let's dig into it. On a scale, well, no, that's an unfair way to start this. Watching this movie <laughs> the third time, Matt, or the however many time for Liz and I, did you guys enjoy the film more than the last time you saw it? Uh, no, I think I had remembered it as better than it was. Um, I mean, it's story-wise, visually, acting is just a train wreck. Um, I think I, just, I had given it more of a benefit of the doubt in my mind. And then at rewatching it, like, oh, this does not come together anywhere near as well as I had remembered it. Liz, I, it does no, it's n- it's no better. It it makes after watching you know some of the Clone Wars, after reading that Padme book, it just sort of makes me sad for what could have been, for how good these movies could have been. I it, yeah, yeah. So I, I have I have three Star Wars. I I have many friends who like Star Wars, but I have three friends who will all argue tooth and nail. This is the best of the prequels, and uh, I mean to be fair, that is not like the that is not the toughest uh, competition, <laughs> right? Like there aren't <laughs> there aren't that many uh, there aren't that many good you know. You understand what I'm saying, so um, yeah, we get you. So I, I don't, I don't think it's the best of the prequels. I also don't think it's the worst of the prequels. I think that this has, in a way, this is the most pure vision that George Lucas ever had for anything. Because I think that when he made the original Star Wars, A New Hope. He was limited by special effects and by budget. Those those uh, limitations more or less were gone by the time he made The Phantom Menace. I think that the prequels after this were hemmed in both by the negative response to The Phantom Menace and also to the realization that we need to wrap up this stuff in two movies and get the story to a place where it hands off to a new hope, right? So I feel like this is the only truly unencumbered Star Wars movie. 
And because of that, I think that if you can sort of get down with what Lucas was trying to do, this can actually be a fun movie to to sort of dream on in a way because it is just the most pure distilled version of George Lucas's efforts for Star Wars. But what that shows is that George Lucas's hopes for Star Wars are often at odds with what makes Star Wars good. <laughs> so so it's a complicated this is this is to me the most complicated of the prequels. I I will say right now and this might be proven incorrect when we get to these movies. Attack of the Clones is garbage. And I mm-hmm. think Revenge of the Sith is good. It's I, not I, great. I do not know where you get that from. Hmm. Let's watch it together and we'll see in a few yes. weeks. Yes. Ooh, I'm excited for this now. Even more so. I, I, I'm not saying that it's like as good as other Star Wars at all. But I would say, I mean, I, if, I, if I'm if i generous and a bourbon or two in, you might hear me say it's <laughs> yeah. better than Return of the Jedi. Whoa. Oh, um, my God. I don't think that's really true. I think, that, I think that's Brian Bravado <laughs> at times saying that. Um, that's but, the bourbon. That's the bourbon talking, yes. But um, but but I think it's, yeah, I, I do. I think it's a good, I think it's a good Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. So this one, I think, falls squarely in between those two in terms of quality and in terms of almost everything. So hmm. so let's just sort of talk about like the main characters quickly and just um to me the only one that really we have to spend any time with is Qui-Gon because mm-hmm. Qui-Gon's the only character we're not going to see again or the or a character that had anything to say like we're not going to see Darth Maul again in these prequels but Darth Maul has like two lines of dialogue in this movie I think maybe three so it's not I, like... I forgot he spoke yeah so it's not like so we learned we learned much so about him. you know um so I think Qui-Gon is, is also the most interesting character in this movie by a long shot. Yeah. Um, what's the good and the bad of Qui-Gon? Liz, talk Qui-Gon well, to us. To be perfectly honest, I had f- forgotten or not realized or just chatting with you guys while we were watching the movie, I kind of didn't realize how much of a jerk he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that was a big takeaway for me here. That that, yeah. that 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 was a big one for me. Just yeah, I'd, for, not, I'd forgotten that too. Yeah, they, and I know Brian. This was a big point of yours when we were watching the movie. Is why he just didn't take Anakin's mother. Also, that, it that really bothers me. I, I must. Yeah. So just to let everyone know, we we use a service called Two Seven to watch the movie sync together, and we had like a chat in there, which I thought was a really fun way to watch the movie. Actually, I don't know how you guys felt about that. It was. Yeah, I enjoyed was it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I kept bringing up, like, they should have just taken Shmi Skywalker. There's no reason to not just take her. Come on. No one's watching. Not even that. If someone says don't do that, you pull out your laser sword. Like, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with you, yeah. man? Um, uh, you also could have just taken the part, gotten money another way. You put <laughs> Anakin's life at risk for literally no reason other than to test whether or not he's a good enough Jedi for you to steal him from this planet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Through using the Force to, you know, manipulate a die roll. Yes. Yeah, all those things just, 
I, I read them a totally different way this time watching this movie. That was a big takeaway for me. And they could yet. stand on edge and say, oh, it's both of them now. Like, you're right. a space wizard, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and yet, I think that most people, and, and Matt, I know I've heard you say this in the past, I mm-hmm. think that Qui-Gon is probably like one of the more respected Jedis in terms of, like, he looked beyond the sort of... Um, restrictions of the order and ha- and the council and looked to do things differently and was should be lauded for that and i understand <clears throat> excuse me i understand that in other media we see that but in this film we don't see a lot of that <laughs> no i it was very very weird because again he and his closest comparison really is Kane and Jarrus or Kane and Jarrus from Rebels, for those for, that haven't seen for, Rebels. From yeah. Rebels. For other reasons, exists outside of the Jedi Order, um, because, you know, they're all dead. Um, takes on an apprentice who is supposedly too old, who maybe he shouldn't really be training, but will anyway, because he sees the good of it. And he sees beyond the rules of the Jedi and is able to find kind of a more complete picture of the Force. But Qui-Gon seems to look past the rules of the Jedi to do whatever the fuck he wants. He's just like a loose cannon cop with nothing to lose. Yes. <laughs> I'll take it a step further. I actually think the character closest to Qui-Gon, but the mirror image of him is Luke in The Last Jedi. Okay, where, yeah. Where he oh. has seen the folly of the Jedi, but instead of trying to like break the rules within the Jedi, he shuts it all down. Hmm. He says like, yeah. He says, I'm not going to train you because it's bad to be a Jedi and the force doesn't belong to the Jedi and it's bigger than that. And But in the end, they have the opposite reactions. In the end, Qui-Gon fails his subject, which we'll talk about later, the Dave Filoni thing. He fails Anakin by not training him, whereas I feel like Luke helps Rey by not training her. Luke helps Rey find who she is herself, not fitting into this rigid structure so they're really they're really mirrors of each other i think in some ways Hmm. it's interesting i like that yeah i like that too Uh, yeah go ahead liz and it's difficult to see how obi-wan becomes who he is by who qui-gon is in this movie and who yoda is and who the jedi council is in general Mm -hmm. my big takeaway when when i started thinking about this movie logically after seeing it a couple times i i the the overriding sense i had was that when I was a kid, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. I wanted to be a Jedi. Now that I see what the Jedi are like, I don't want to be like them. They suck. They're <laughs> jerks. I don't want to be a Jedi. And I get that that is what Lucas was trying to say. I think Lucas realizes how bad the Jedi Order is. Mm-hmm. But why did he make... Like, it just seems like such a weird way to tell the story. Yeah. And again, it, it, it it's one of the many things in this series in these movies that is so much better told by the clone wars you get so much of a clearer view of the flaws of the council and how they're short-sighted by ahsoka's story than by qui-gon's because qui-gon yep. is essentially like a QAnon conspiracy nut when it comes to this you gone because <laughs> yeah. he is he is simply he's single-mindedly obsessed with this idea of the chosen one and is willing to tear apart families steal boys in the night 
um, go against the will of the ruling council to follow this kind of crackpot dream that he has. That, as we talked about before, may not ever come into fruition. We're still unclear about that. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah, I... I, I yeah, the, the glow around him does kind of fade the more you actually watch this film. Yes, I agree with that. Um, I also want to say uh, that I had said this in the chat. And I, I actually, I, for a while I was thinking about starting a Tumblr. It was going to be called Accidental Jedis, which is just like people dressed like Jedis out in the wild, like wearing long flowing <laughs> things or whatever. But Qui-Gon is styled in this movie, aside from the beard, if you take the beard off of Qui-Gon, he's styled like a lesbian ant on vacation in Sedona. Like, every, everything <laughs> is very flowy, his hair is pulled back, he looks very comfortable. Like it's a good look yeah. for him. Um, yeah. uh, but it's, you know, he, he one of the things that, my, I think it was my friend Walt, somebody said it to me, which was that one of the big mistakes of Star Wars is that Ben Kenobi dresses the way he does because he lives in the desert. But the prequels decided all Jedi should dress like that, and it really makes no sense when you think about it. Um, and I, I, I've never been able to get that out of my head after I initially heard that, um, mm. because like it, on a desert, like if you look at people like who live in the desert, they wear long flowing things because it keeps them cool and it keeps them away from the sun and all that. But like, can you imagine a worse thing for a? Uh, a Jedi who has to go underwater to wear then these long flowing things that are going to pull you down like and they carry with them shit to breathe underwater with so obviously they go underwater frequently enough to carry that stuff with them right so like, yeah you know that's a very weird decision um uh just visually um let's talk about quiet uh, we just said that uh, I, I didn't have a stroke i promise uh let's talk about <laughs> obi-wan for a second because obi-wan doesn't have a ton to do here but we see we see his sense of humor a little bit in the movie and we see that he is torn between loyalty to his master and qui-gon and to the jedi council um i think ewan mcgregor is hands down the best thing in the prequels like overall but he's not given a ton to do in this movie no, he just looks down his nose at everyone who is not a Jedi. <laughs> Lesser Which creatures. was interesting. I didn't remember that about him. And he, he kind of just, he hates Jar Jar, I think partially because he's not human, um, calling him a lower life form, but also refers to Slave Boy Anakin like that. Yep. Mm. It, it's very, very weird. Um... Yeah, you essentially just see him as an asshole, but also a physical force to be reckoned with, which is something you tend to forget throughout the series, um, which makes a fight against Vader very interesting in that perspective, too. Yes. In a very, very long, long-winded way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the biggest takeaway for me, again, is just these characters I thought... I liked turns out to be kind of jerks in this movie, which again is not something I necessarily remembered. Um, I, I did still kind of like Obi-Wan though. I like Ewan McGregor. I feel like he does a good job here. Yeah. And I, what I like about his opinion of Jar Jar and Anakin here is that we see how much that changes 
Yeah. Like, he's the character that goes through the most growth in the prequels. In some ways, Anakin Skywalker is the same exact character when he's eight years old and when he's 20 years mm -hmm. old. Um, yeah. You know, but but, but Obi-Wan, rather, really does change quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Anakin's only moment of growth is in the last 20 minutes of his life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Obi-Wan is, is not as good in this movie as he will become in other, in other movies. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. but yeah. it's weird to think like Sobulba, who is, you know, villain number three of the film is less evil than maybe some of the Jedi that we love. <laughs> yes. Sobulba is just a guy trying to support his family pot racing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so let's briefly talk about Palpatine. We're going to spend so much of the next two movies talking about Palpatine, but Liz is something interesting in our chat the other day, which was that she forgot how much of Palpatine's rise is sort of directly out of actions taken by Padme. Mm. Um, but let, let, let's leave that on the table for just a second and just talk about the sort of, um... Is there anything about Palpatine in this film that doesn't instantly paint him as the evil emperor? Because I think that's one of the big problems of this movie is I think if they had managed to keep the emperor's identity until the third movie, if you found out when Anakin found out, think about how much more powerful that would have been than this mm -hmm. like sniveling shit that's there for all three movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it, it was interesting. Watching this again gave me a tiny bit more respect for him, believe it or not. For Sheev? Because, for Sheev, baby? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because, again, you see him as the emperor. He continually makes these, like, heavy-handed plays that 90% don't work out. He is so much of a failed villain. Um, he tips over the most kind of easy to collapse empire we've ever seen on film um but almost not through his own planning but in this movie we see him manipulate padme we see him what i thought was the most villainous thing maybe we see on screen is he sends his own world into like death camps his rise to power is he sacrifices his home planet which is like a truly villainous act that really solidifies him as Sith that we, for some reason, have underplayed in the lore. I don't know why that, like, it took me the third watching to put those pieces together. Um, so that's why watching, I was like, oh, wow, this guy really is a villain. But I don't think that, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I don't think you can watch this movie the first time and feel that way. No, no, it, no, you can't. Because there's no way you would really be able to piece that together. Right. Hmm. Also, again, Newt Gunray seems to be more at the center of this plot than maybe Dooku at some points, which <laughs> was also strange. I feel like they hadn't really solidified how everything fit together yet when they made this. No, they certainly have not. <laughs> Liz, what did you think of this? Um, 
I, I feel like so much of my view of him is just, I don't know if tainted is the right word, is just affected by later movies. I, I just expect him, I guess, to come in. It's tough to think of him as a new character in this movie. I, you know, he's just obviously the bad guy here. Um, I, yeah, there's no like surprise reveal. It's just, oh, here's the bad guy. It's just, I, and I think part of it may be that is why this movie seems dull. It was tough for me to pay attention to this movie at points. And, you know, maybe that's part of it. We just know who the bad guy is right off the bat. And I, and don't, what, I don't really know how you fix that. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know if you can. That's the problem with a prequel, right? Is that you know how the story it's ends. It's very true. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, with these three movies, you also rotate through, like, villain number two in each film, which doesn't right. help anything. Yeah. Because you have Maul and then Dooku and then Grievous, and you can never care about any of them because they're on screen for a total of 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And it's something they could have fixed with the sequel trilogy, but they, they stuck him back in. Back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, again, when Brian was talking about the mistakes of these first films, you're like, oh, wow, they did the same exact thing with the sequel trilogy, too. <laughs> I, I, I Shot think... big, recourse corrected, and then ended with a wet fart. <laughs> we will. I, I think that I think that opinion will change after we watch the third movie, but we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Mm, okay. Um, but yeah, okay. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll talk about the rest of the characters from the Phantom Menace. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. All right, so let's talk Padme. So we recently read Queen's Shadow, which is a Padme novel, which I, I think we all generally liked. I think that there was, you know, there, there's a sense of it being inessential, which I, I think you're never going to totally escape from a, a, a Star Wars novel. Um, but especially mm. a Star Wars novel that is about a very particular point in a character's life that doesn't have all that much importance to it. Um, you know, but I, I think we all enjoyed that novel at least somewhat. I think we've all enjoyed the Padme episodes of the Clone Wars thus far. Um, mm -hmm. What did you guys think of of Padme's, um, you know, her, I guess her story arc in this first film? Um, well, I think, like we mentioned before, the biggest takeaway for me was, I, you know, I didn't remember at all that she did have a hand in Palpatine's rise. I think, was she the one that started the vote of no confidence for the former, was it mm -hmm. Chancellor? Yeah, well, yep. well, so she is, she's manipulated by Palpatine to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. he basically says, this is the only way to go against the Chancellor is to do this. Yeah, um, which I definitely had not remembered. Um, and she got that started, um, I, yeah. which was, yeah, interesting for me. Well, I liked how the book really elevated that moment mm -hmm. into that vote 
just kind of reveals a lot of the cracks in the Republic and just how a lot of systems no longer have faith. They don't think they can be protected. They don't think that they are being heard. And it makes it so much easier for Dooku to swoop in and grab a bunch of planets who are already feeling what Padme feels, but were too scared to say it openly in a way that she was kind of given the boost of confidence from the guy who's going to take the power right. to do. Yeah. Which yeah. is actually interesting, too, in terms of just real world implications. You know, it's believable in some sense. Well, yeah. That's one of my problems with with these prequels is that I feel like all these thoughts that we have that are somewhat intellectual discussions of of these films, you can't get those until you're looking back on the films. Mm. There is nothing in your initial viewing or even your hundredth viewing unless you know the whole story that really makes it sense that really makes sense. And I think True. that's a big problem. True. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about that necessarily. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it also, the, the book also helped a lot with the, made it much more interesting to see the dynamic of the decoys yeah. and understanding exactly their roles. And it does. Part of it is also the books always try to fill the gaps left by the movies mm-hmm. in the scene where the queen and her decoys storm the castle makes no sense if you're just watching it until you realize that she's a trained fighter right she's essentially a soldier as all of her handmaidens are as well um but you wouldn't know that from watching the film right there's also there's the scene where which i have always thought was one of the dumbest scenes which is where padme decides to join obi-wan and going into town to get um to try and get supplies to fix the ship. And that's where they wind up meeting Anakin and all that. And obviously you need her in that scene because you need her to meet Anakin, right? But why would she go there? And then you see, or rather, I was just like, you know, why would the actual queen go there? Wouldn't, shouldn't the handmaiden have gone? And then you see in the book, there's that, there's that like phrase that she says whenever, it's like the secret phrase that Padme can say, to the to whoever's in the decoy suit to like mm-hmm. I I know what I'm doing essentially you know what I mean and, and, yeah uh, mm-hmm. so that that gets straightened out a little bit I don't think I still think it's bad writing but it's not as bad because you're given that extra context mm-hmm. um before I get to Anakin is there any other character you think we need to talk about um there really aren't that many characters in this movie. I think who was in it. Other than just cameo, because this thing is chock full of cameos. Right. E.T., Jabba, Aura Singh, like... Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and and also, you know, I feel like the Jedi Council doesn't do that much in this movie. You sort of see them... You you begin to see how ineffectual they are and and, and how maybe useless they are, but you don't really get a lot of time with those characters... Um, we mentioned how Darth Maul is a nothing character, essentially, mm-hmm. in this. Um, you know, we we establish in our chat just how how many racist caricatures there are in this movie. Oh, oh yeah. You know, whether yeah. it's the Asian caricatures uh, of the Trade Federation or the uh, Caribbean caricature of Jar Jar Binks, 
and the other Gungans, or it's the Jewish caricature of Watto. Ugh. It's really, it's really gross. Um, mm-hmm. The sort of the the racial uh, implications of a lot of this stuff. Um, I guess Jar Jar is kind of worth talking about. Have you guys heard the Jar Jar is a Sith theory? I've heard it mentioned vaguely. I'm not. I'm, that's not one of the ones that I'm well versed in. Okay. I don't it either let me give you a brief synopsis of this so if you watch the phantom menace there are a number of moments where it seems like jar jar is controlling things like we'll see him kind of mouth along with someone with what they're saying so a character's talking he's kind of in the background like mouthing along with them there's a time when something falls down or something. I forget exactly what happens, but you see his hand move in the way that like Qui-Gon moves to, to fuck with the dice, you know, like you, <laughs> and people have taken this, that the original plan was that um, he was going to be a Sith Lord who was going to be a bigger part of the next two films, but that people hated him so much that Lucas decided not to do that. Now, I think this is flawed for a few reasons. I feel like, number one, when have we ever seen Lucas care what the fans think? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Number two, wouldn't that redeem the character? Mm. You know, like, in the fans' eyes, if if he wasn't just annoying, but he was playing annoying to trick them, right? It it just doesn't make Mm. sense to me that that this would be the case. Um, But if you... If Jar Jar is not an evil Sith Lord, then he's just simply the most annoying character. <laughs> yeah, yes. maybe in Star Wars history, there is some competition yeah. in the in the coming sequels, uh, coming prequels rather, for uh, for more annoying characters in Jar Jar. But Jar Jar is right up there. Um, yeah, he's bad. Oh, but real quick, if we are talking about. You you sparked in my head when you talked about ridiculous theories. We do need to mention R two D two and C three PO in this film mm. for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that they need to be shoved into everything Star Wars. Um, that again, it just sticks out like a thumb. You're like, really, Anakin made C three PO the random protocol droid. That we then see go to Luke. I guess it plays into the larger, I don't know, big school narrative until R2-D2 is replaced by a cuter, younger <laughs> mechanical droid. Um, is he secretly female? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, and just the outsized role that those dumb droids have in everything that goes on on screen is just, again, terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. Archie, <laughs> um, <laughs> did you sing his hand at least saves the ship? <laughs> you see him fighting off droids, lighting a ship on fire in the third one. Like it. <sighs> yeah, it, it's it's not great. I I would say that Lucas. I mean, I think it's it's clear why he wanted a character that would appeal to kids, but I think that when you look at what. I think he has no idea what part of the character would appeal to kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you 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 have an actual child, but you've made him so annoying that no one would like him, much less children. <laughs> well, I, I mean, 
even beyond Anakin, I just think like Jar Jar is obviously trying for like the kid audience, right? But he's terrible. I think that <laughs> yeah. I think that Lucas has no idea what it was about the droids that people liked because he certainly doesn't try to make them likable. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just think he has no clue, sort of what what works. One of the best things I heard about Star Wars was that George Lucas has great ideas, but has no idea why they work. And I feel like that's that's a really good description of George Lucas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. Let, let's I, li- I like how you, you pointed sorry. out. Oh, sorry. Just wrong. How you pointed out that it almost seems as if the actors are instructed to act poorly in the film <laughs> was also enlightening to me. Like, yeah, it, it almost seems that way. Uh, it it it's really bad. Uh, the the a lot of the acting performances from really good actors is really bad in this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Shmi is by far the best on screen performance of the film. <laughs> yeah, and she's uh, not a, to my knowledge, not a known actress. Right? Was she Mm-mm. in many other things? Not that I know of. Yeah. Um. But let's talk about Anakin for a minute here because I think Anakin is. Both the best and worst part of this movie. Yippee! Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I am officially going to go on record as being pro-Jake Lloyd. I don't think anything bad about this movie had anything to do with Jake Lloyd. I think if you could get uh, the the child of Philip Seymour Hoffman, my favorite actor of all time, <laughs> and, you, and you put him in the same role, he would be just as bad. There is nothing about the acting that is the problem with Anakin Skywalker. It is the it is the script and it is the way he is directed. So people stop being shitty to Jake Lloyd. The kid did nothing wrong. You're just mad that he got yeah. to play Star Wars professionally and you didn't get to. Yeah. That's all it comes down to. Um that said, um I think that there is a lot of sad stuff about Anakin's story that that is actually that could have been fodder for a really interesting take on that character in future films. Like when when I watch this movie now, as an adult, uh, I hate saying as a father because I don't believe that only parents know empathy. Um, but like I I think if you watch this movie, your heart breaks for the Skywalkers, and that's that is. There, there's a lot of sadness at the heart of Star Wars, but I don't know if anything is as purely sad as this. Yeah, it's really, it's really dark stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there was a way to make that stuff more uh, meaningful or worthwhile in in future films. But it really doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, I, I think that Jake Lloyd, like I said, is fine for what he was in in these movies uh in this movie rather um i think that when you ask a child to to say to someone are you an angel there's like <laughs> there's no way to make that line sound anything but like corny and stupid right there's just there's no way and so many of the things that he says are just again he was instructed to say yippee yeah <laughs> he was instructed to say, "Now this is pod racing." Like all all of the shitty things about this movie have nothing to do with him. Yeah, he didn't write it. Right, exactly. Um, but that said, I do not. I 
I do not and will never understand why George Lucas felt that he had to tell this story with Anakin at this age. And here is why I say that. <laughs> if the point is that Anakin is too old to train, why just make him nine years old? Why not make him 15 years old? You're, yeah, because if the point he's is not he's too, notably older than the younglings, right? So if if you're gonna do that, like lean into it, bro. You know, yeah. and that way the romance is less creepy. <laughs> that way you don't have to instruct a child actor to to be impossibly awkward in in ways that are, again are no are not at all his fault, but just you know the reality of of his role. Um, and I think it also makes him. I think he would have more resistance to things like leaving his mother because he would morally understand how dangerous the situation is in a way that a little kid just can't. To me, yeah. there is nothing gained from making Anakin that young. Mm -hmm. And I will never understand why Lucas needed to do that. No. It's almost as if a lot of the other pieces were written for him to be older. Yeah. He's racing grown adults in pod racing. He has a romantic connection with the queen of a elected official of a planet. <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make it any better. No. Yeah. Except yeah. you have to have a horde of other children hanging around with him. Yeah. But I mean, Kitster could have been fifteen. It didn't. You need to be a little child. <laughs> Yeah, and like and like like you said, Brian. So much of Anakin's past is dark, and even you know what happens to him here—the fact that he's taken from his mother. You know, it, what's happening to him now is very dark, and I think we have a chance as an audience to see these dark things happen to him, or dark things that have happened to him in the past. But Lucas makes this choice to make things seem very light, where he's, you know, building these droids. But that, he's a you know, slave. I, <laughs> I know. It doesn't, it doesn't see. It doesn't seem dark, though. No, I agree. I, I'm agreeing yeah. with you. You know, it, it's ridiculous yeah. that that and, it's not dark. I know, and you know. It, I mean, he also racks up his first mass body count in the war <laughs> as a nine-year-old. So that helps desensitize him. True. I guess that could help a little bit. But, you know, we get a chance here, you know, as an audience, we could get some sympathy or, you know, we could garner some sympathy, you know, for our tragic hero. But it doesn't mm -hmm. really it, it doesn't really happen. Um, and I, my mom always says, you know, I, the mistake they make with him is taking him from his mom. Mm -hmm. That, you know, things would have been all right with Anakin. He wouldn't become Darth Vader if they didn't take him from his mom to begin with. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think maybe you make a good point that, you know, if he was older, I, it, it would be more effective. It would make more sense. Or you could, it, you could it, even, like, to me, part of part of the Luke character that you see in, in Anakin is the sort of wanderlust that Luke has. And I think mm -hmm. if, if Anakin was 15 and this Jedi comes for him, well, maybe he's tired of being a slave. Maybe he doesn't like Tatooine. Maybe him and his mom have a falling out, and that adds to the guilt when she gets killed. Like, there's so much you can do with a 15-year-old that you just can't do with a 9-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't understand the repercussions, the implications of what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a shame. 
it, it's really a weird choice. And and it, kids in movies are always tough. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, yeah. his his as acting is just as fine as Jingle All the Way, and nobody blames him for that film. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the poor kid really got a really got a rough deal. Yeah, yeah. I I feel for him. I do. I it, it's a shame, and, and I believe he is he has since um, revealed that he is that he suffers from bipolar disorder, hmm. and so that is that is a hard thing to live with under the best of circumstances, uh, not counting when there are is an entire legion of grown men who hate you because. <laughs> Because you were a good enough actor to be cast in a bad film. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I really do feel immense sympathy for Jake Lloyd. And uh, I refuse to let this podcast be uh, a place where people shame Jake Lloyd for anything. No. no. Agreed. Imagine if he wasn't a white male. Mm. Yeah. I mean, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Any other uh, Phantom Menace thoughts? Anything you know, we can do rapid fire, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, the the CGI is terrible. Special it's... effects just age movies so easily. Wait until the next one. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the you know, but the next one decides to shift to just not having actors <laughs> or sets. Yeah. <laughs> or sets. Yeah. Um, but there, there's like a lot of scenes where it's very mixed. Where it'll be a CGI background, and then Jar Jar, and then the Jedi, and nothing, no shadows match each other. It just looks completely amateur. And you know, this is the guy who really invented the American, you know, you know, special effects department. Like, yeah, oh, it's it, it backslid so bad. And keep in mind, this came out what seven years after Jurassic Park, so you could do special effects. You just didn't. Hmm. All the behind-the-scenes pictures I remember seeing are just in front of green screens. They were they were in Tunisia, I believe, which is where historically Tatooine has been filmed. Um, but I believe that a lot of it it is a hybrid of green screen and uh, and and set. You know, for this, whereas uh, Attack of the Clones is almost entirely green screen. Yeah. Uh, and then the Mandalorian is almost entirely not filmed on location. Have you guys watched any more of that? Uh, that's that Disney Plus series. The uh, what's it called? It's like the basically the making of the Mandalorian series. No, I haven't, but I did see they filmed it in a different way. Um, yes, so there, there's a whole episode of this series on Disney Plus about it, and so I'm going to try and describe it, and I'm probably going to fuck it up, but l let me give it a shot here. So, essentially, instead of having a green screen where after you film whatever you're doing, you have to import the video into there they basically made a um this this gigantic like domed room where they could use video game engines to put not just a setting 
but a setting that will move with the characters. So as the characters walk along, the game engine moves the background with them. So it's like walking inside of a video game, essentially. But everything is is super high high quality, high resolution. So basically any place that you need to be, you can recreate in this one room. It's crazy. It's crazy I, I just right now found out that they were that was not all location based. I thought you were gonna say that in the opposite, Mandalorian is only filmed on location. Wouldn't you think that? Yeah, I had no idea. I just learned that. You really go back and watch that series. It's fascinating. Oh it's fascinating. Uh, all the actors were saying, like, when they got there, they were very skeptical of it, and then they realized how great it was. Because one of the things is that the it allows the background to also be the light source. Mm. So if you have a sun in the sky, it will cast shadow on the actors in real time you're not mm. going back and adding shadow you're it that's happening in the room hmm that's it's amazing. fascinating it's 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 wow. it's really interesting yeah uh it's it's super cool um but i but that series which i have to look up the name of it now it's um hang on it is uh it i i showed you guys a uh a piece from it at the end of the movie we were watching, which is that um, there's this amazing scene of Dave Filoni sitting around a table with the other directors. Sorry, it's called the Disney Gallery. It's called Disney Gallery Star Wars The Mandalorian. And it's, I think, six episodes long. I've watched the first four. Sorry, eight episodes long. I've watched the first four. I have to finish watching the rest of them. Um, but it's excellent. In one of the episodes, Dave Filoni gives like a five-minute uninterrupted speech about the Duel of the Fates scene and how that scene is so misunderstood by fans. And I'll admit it, I misunderstood the scene not hearing Filoni talk about it. Mm -hmm. he, he basically says that the Duel of the Fates is the fight for Anakin, that if Qui-Gon wins... He will have a father figure in his life, but because Maul wins, he he does not have a father figure. And he talks about Obi-Wan is really his brother, is almost like a brother to him and not a father to him, and how because he doesn't have this father to look out for him, all these bad things happen to him. And he connects it with the end of Return of the Jedi, and I'm not doing it justice. You have to watch him talk. Yeah, It's a pretty impressive uh, soliloquy he gives on Star Wars. Mm -hmm. It's very impressive. Yeah. Was there a bit from it that stood out to you guys in particular? Hmm. I just had never, never, I had never thought of Qui-Gon as a potential father figure for Anakin and how different everything would have been with Qui-Gon in the picture. Because right. you never, you only think of it as a dual relationship, you know, between Anakin and Obi Wan, almost in that idea of kind of the Sith master apprentice. But it goes deeper than that, right? Um, and, and we see that he he eventually does find a father figure, but it's Palpatine. Yeah. 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 It, it's it, it's very. It, it, 
his his ability to put context to Star Wars is just fascinating. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I need to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really good, and I think that it, it's a good place to end the conversation about the Phantom Menace because what I think Filoni is able to do is he's able to see what Lucas was trying to do, and allows us and I allows us to appreciate the Phantom Menace, even though the source material is not necessarily um, what we're appreciating. We're appreciating the themes that were so poorly articulated, it took somebody else 20 years later to explain them to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think he does explain it quite well. He does. Um, yeah, I agree. So yeah, I... I, I thoroughly endorse the Disney collection Star Wars the Mandalorian series for everybody. I mean, I I'm some I'm a process nerd. I like to see how things are made. If you're anything like that, it is it's it's a wonderful wonderful watch. Um I'm going to watch it. But yeah, any any closing thoughts on uh The Phantom Menace? Just looking forward to watching the next two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna instantly regret that when we watch Attack of the Clones uh, soon. Uh, it's, you leave uh, Dax out of this, all right? No. <laughs> hey, he's serving Jawa juice, which either means that <laughs> it's made from dead Jawas, or Jawas like uh, uh, sell, uh, like, like Girl Scout cookies. Like I, I don't, I, I don't really know, but it's it's a bad look regardless. Um, yeah. But anyway, we'll be back in a few weeks with our look at. Attack of the Clones, and remember until next time, the Force will be with you, always. 